This episode of Pod Cemetery is brought to you by Bernie's Rare Books, now in possession of all four volumes of the 1780 Ibarra edition of Don Quixote, priced at $22,000. Hello, my name is Chris. My name is Kelsey. And this is Pod Cemetery, where we dissect horror movies like the rotting corpses that they are. It's Satanic Thriller Week on Pod Cemetery with 1999's The Ninth Gate and 2017's The Ascent. But before we get to the movies, Kelsey, how do we start the show? Horror trivia! Give me what you got. What is the name of Broken Lizard's 2004 slasher film that was released after Super Troopers? Club Dread. That is correct. Hooray! We did that one. We did. Kelsey... Yes. Vincent Price had a role in which 1990 hit film starring Johnny Depp? Edward Scissorhands. That is correct. All right, Kelsey, let's get started on Satanic Thriller Week here with 1999's The Ninth Gate. Based on a novel, The Club Dumas by Arturo Perez Reverte, with a screenplay by John Brown, John Enrique Urbizu, and Roman Polanski, directed by Roman Polanski, starring Johnny Depp, Frank Langella, and Lena Olin. What is The Ninth Gate about? A rare book dealer is swept up in a satanic cult because one of their books, he has to find one of their books, basically. Okay. Now, this was uh, shot mainly in Paris, including the New York City sequences. Certainly, we know, because Roman Polanski is pretty much stuck in Paris because he's not allowed to return to America. Nope. Because in 1977, he drugged and raped a 13-year-old girl. Yep. Fuck him. So I kind of don't want to talk about Roman Polanski at all, even though he made... One of our favorite horror movies ever. Before that happened. <laughs> True. <laughs> Before his wife was brutally murdered, and maybe that had an effect his on him. His pregnant wife yes. was brutally murdered. And maybe that had an effect on who he ended up becoming. <laughs> yes, uh, but we do not want to necessarily uh, no. celebrate Roman no. Polanski in any way, shape, or form. But we will talk about his movie. You can get the movie for free on Stars, which is how we watched it, even though I have it on DVD. It's just easier to stream it. Uh, or you can rent or buy the movie on iTunes and Vudu for 4 and $8, respectively. Should people watch this movie? I'm going to say no. I'm going to say yes. If you're into that sort of late 90s, early 2000s horror thriller Boring sort of motif. Boring horror where Oh, fuck happens. you. <laughs> And Johnny Depp is phoning it in, even though he was supposed to be super excited to work with Roman Polanski. Yeah, he was. So, yeah, we have two awesome people, totally great guys, mm -hmm. uh, who really wanted to work together. 
birds of a feather, I Even guess. Even though it feels like Johnny Depp's just phoning it in the entire time. It's really funny that you say that. You're absolutely right, because he's not playing fucking Captain Jack Sparrow or any of his other over-the-top characters that he plays. A lot of people accuse Johnny Depp of having no personality in this movie, and I completely disagree. I 100% disagree. This is a fucking old book expert. What, do you Johnny want me to be Depp, flamboyant? Johnny Depp has a few characters that he nails, okay? All his other characters are just slight variations, amalgamations of those characters. And here we have the same character that we find in... I would argue, like, Secret Window and... Mm -hmm. But this is my point. Whenever he doesn't play a caricature, people say he's phoning it in. Every other actor gets to play real people, but Johnny Depp doesn't, apparently. The only time I can think of when Johnny actually seemed like a normal human being was Nightmare on Elm Street. <laughs> and even then... I thought he was pretty normal. Well, I thought he, he got was to a be, normal He got teenager. to be like a teenager, and that's the point. He got to be a teenager. But when your first movies are like, you know, Crybaby and Edward Scissorhands and Nightmare on Elm Street, like, you don't you, – you end up getting a reputation. But he was also a teenage police officer in 21 Jump Street, <laughs> and he was – I, he was weird in Benny and June. He was. I love Benny and June. He was interesting in What's Eating Gilbert Grape. He was fucking Ed Wood and Ed Wood. Yeah. And all of those are interesting, good performances. Right. But I think we're we're missing out on roles like, you know, his thriller roles like Nick of Time and Secret Window. And I mean, God, remember Chocolat? <laughs> but no, we He's think fine of, in Chocolat. We think of. Pirates of the Caribbean, we think of Sleepy Hollow, we think of Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, you know, all these over-the-top characters that he plays. The minute he plays just a dude, everyone says he's phoning it in. I I disagree. I think we're holding him to a different standard because he's Johnny Depp. <sighs> but I do see where you're coming from. This is not your usual Johnny Depp role. He plays a guy in this, and that's it. A prick, but he's just a guy. So I can see how that could be, it could feel like below expectations that way. I say if you're into this sort of thing, then absolutely. If you liked Secret Window, I think you'll like this, as far as Johnny Depp's performance goes. But it's very much from 1999, and it is nowhere near... Rosemary's Baby. No. In quality. No. Not at all. I've never read the book, but considering Polanski's decision to stay so close to the book in Rosemary's Baby, I have to imagine that he did the same here. Not at all. Really? Yeah, there is not even a touch of the supernatural in the original book. Really? Yeah, the original book is about a club of people who have uh, all the different chapters of... The Three Musketeers by Alexander Dumas. Hence, the Club Dumas is the name of the book. And all the Satanism is just a red herring in that story. There is no supernatural. There is no Satan. Like, none of that. It's just a book club 
that that really is obsessed with the three musketeers. That's weird. Yeah. What I was going to say was that it wouldn't surprise me if you did tell me that because there's a lot of scenes in this movie that you're just like, the fuck? Yeah. Why did that just happen? Uh Uh-huh. That had nothing to do with anything. Well, I don't know about nothing to do with anything. Let's, uh... I'm talking about weird little things. I'm not talking about, like, whole scenes. I'm talking about, like, moments where you're just like, what? Uh Why? (laughs) You can tell that this movie is trying to be, like, an omen. Yes. This has a lot of omen feelings. Right. And and it's, it's nowhere near that quality, and I would not claim it is. I just think it's fun and interesting. And I love a good mystery with satanic no undertones. Like all those adventure games I used to play on the computer, like broken the Broken Sword series and shit like that, where you're solving a mystery and then you find a satanic cult. And yeah, so... Gabriel Knight, like that, those games are totally awesome. And this makes me feel like that, but in movie form. And that's why I really like it. So if that is intriguing to you, then go ahead and watch it. But if you're not into seeing Johnny Depp play just a dude and some weird Satanist stuff, then I think you can totally skip it from Kelsey's perspective. Yeah. You can take our advice or leave it. But when we get back, we will talk about 1999's. The Ninth Gate. Are you a religious man, Mr. Corso? I mean, do you believe in the supernatural? Nine Gates of the Kingdom of Shadows. Reputed to conjure up the Prince of Darkness in person. Only three copies survived. I'm convinced only one is authentic. I want you to get it for me. You mean the devil won't show up? Collector Dean Corso has just been given a mysterious assignment. What are you looking for, Mr. Corso? I'm not quite sure. It is a window into the past. Have you studied the engravings? Some books are dangerous. A gateway into another world. L.C.F. Who's L.C.F.? Lucifer himself. And a power beyond all understanding. I'm starting to see things. Uninvited visitors, unfamiliar faces... I don't trust anyone. Coming? Watch with the Wii. There are two of us on there. But he's about to open up the greatest evil of all. What have you got for me? More than I bargained for. I alone have fathomed the Master's grand design. I alone am worthy to enjoy the fruits of that discovery. The Ninth Gate. Rated R. Starts Friday, March 10th everywhere. All right, Kelsey, why don't you get us started on the plot? What happens in the Ninth Gate? Well, it opens on a really bad set (laughs) of a man's study, and it looks so fake. The lighting is really bad in this movie. It's kind of flat lighting. It's really, really bad. A lot of the sets, it's just like, is that plastic? (laughs) It's not good. And this old man is writing a suicide note, and then he hangs himself. And I wrote it right here, right now. And it wasn't until way later in the film that you brought it up. I wrote down, what's with the camera being all shaky? And then later in the film, you were like, why are they doing so much handheld? Yeah. (laughs) Weird choices all over the place. Yeah, there's Steadicam and there's handheld. Uh, They don't have a lot of stationary camera shots, or at least they have more motion shots than you might 
expect or want. And then the camera decides to show us an empty book slot. So a book is missing. Uh And then we get a long fucking intro of titles. Yeah. Do you know why it's that long? (laughs) Why? Because they have to travel through nine gates. There are nine gates that I, the camera I, I travels I did notice through. that we were going through gates. I was like, I'm not going to bother counting. <laughs> there are nine of them. <laughs> okay. Then we get to meet beautiful Johnny Depp, because he is a beautiful man. And he is in <laughs> a library. Not, not an actual library, but a man's library, like a study. Uh-huh. Another one. So Johnny Depp is in this study with this old man staring out a window, sitting in a wheelchair, and obviously something, like he's had a stroke or something, and he can no longer talk. And his kids, being the greedy little grubbers that they are, are already trying to sell off his rare book collection, even though he hasn't even fucking died yet. Yeah. And Johnny Depp is, we find out later, he's overselling. He's saying, oh, these are going to be worth... Half a million or 600,000 or something like that, yeah. But he says, but you know what? Um, You have this copy of Don Quixote. Four volumes, yeah. And honestly, I'll give you a better deal than you'll probably get from anybody else, and I'll give it to you in cash right now. Because the other books, he he's like, look, go ahead and talk to other antique sellers or whatever, um, mm. see what they have to say. Um, but I can tell you right now that it's going to be worth this much. Which gets About the- half of it is are these two particular books. The rest gets you the other half of that money. These four are worth like practically nothing. So I'll take them off your hands right now. And he's already told them this is worth so much. They're getting very excited. But they have to wait until they sell them all. And he's like, and then I have these Don Quixote books and I'll give you this much because I want them. But honestly, you're probably not going to make this much if you sell them. And Always be wary of an appraiser who says they want something, but it's not worth much. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. If I was going to get something appraised, I would get it done by multiple people first. Uh-huh, which they're doing, but he's trying to get out the door with those books before they can do that. But I would not, yeah, I wouldn't yeah. sell a single thing until I talked to multiple people. And I do my own fucking research. Yeah. But still. Uh, the uh, It's also 1999, The the internet research that you could possibly do would be very difficult. True. And the old man certainly knows that he's getting ripped off and he very angrily like moves his hands. He grabs his leg really tight. That's all he can do. As he's walking out the door, uh, another appraiser sees him and they obviously know each other and the guy says that he's unscrupulous but at the same time Johnny Depp accuses him like, you were going to do the exact same thing. I just got here first. Yeah. Uh-huh. So I think more of the intent is that we're supposed to be seeing that Johnny Depp is all he's interested in is money. Yeah. But because they have that exchange and because he says, no, you're the exact same way. It makes it have less of an impact. No, I don't think so. I think it's Johnny Depp who's saying that. And yes, people want to make money on these appraisals and they want to buy these books, but he's he's telling him, oh, you're just mad because I got here first. It doesn't mean that Johnny Depp isn't worse than him. I don't think exact same thing is what he says. And even if it were, who's saying it? A guy we can trust? No, it's a guy we demonstrably know we can't trust. You here? Oh, Whitkin? You didn't waste much time. Listen, there's a small fortune in there. Help yourself. You're a vulture, Corso. A vulture. Who isn't in our business? 
You'd stoop to anything. Crooky hody by Barra. You bet I would. Unscrupulous. Thoroughly unscrupulous. Happy hunting. Well, yeah, but then he comes back to his own bookshop where uh-huh. the guy who works with him tells him that guy called me and he's super mad because now they're asking for more than the books are worth. Yeah. Because he was going to tell them they were worth less, which is what they're worth. Less. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, Johnny Depp ends up going to a seminar of, of a guy who's obsessed with de- demonology. This is Boris Balkin played by Frank Langella. Specifically Satan himself. And he comes in and he sees this mysterious girl who will pop up throughout the rest of the film. And we will refer to as the girl. But Johnny Depp walks in, he falls asleep because we need to know he is not interested in this stuff at all. And the guy comes and wakes him up and he's like, all right, come with me. And first they're kind of bickering, but then the Balkan's like, no, I don't actually care who you are, or what you want, just like you shouldn't care who I am or what I want. We both know that we can help each other out, and that's all that this relationship is, and that's fine. Yeah. He takes him to his special room that has all of his special books, which has, like, a encased glass room just for the books, which, if you've seen the TV show You, that is where he puts his captives. Mm -hmm. It's also (laughs) in the Da Vinci Code. It's just how you control the atmosphere of... Uh, older and more sensitive books. Oh, and I should mention that he, uh, Johnny Depp, is a chain smoker. Yes. Oh, God. Which is perfectly fine for the time. It was 1999. I can believe that. The problem is we've known for a very long time how smoke affects books. Right. And only one person in the entire movie calls him out on that. Yeah. This Balkan guy doesn't care that he's smoking a cigarette Uh around all of these priceless books. I don't fucking think so. Also, him in his job, I don't think he would do it either. Right. Stupid. But it's a character trait. Right, but it also shows how careless he is and how that's going to get him into trouble. Yes. So, he starts telling him that only one book is missing from my collection. The Supreme Masterpiece. The book written by the devil himself. It can conjure the devil in person. The guy says there are three in rotation at the moment, and he doesn't think he has the real one. Yeah, it's a book called The Nine Gates of the Kingdom of Shadows, written by Aristide Torquia, a man who was burned at the stake for writing the book in the first place, and every copy was burned, but three survived and Balkan is worried that the copy he has isn't real and Johnny Depp says why don't you think it's real did Satan not show up what if I find that your copy's a forgery it's quite possible really it doesn't appear to be even the paper sounds kosher even so there's something wrong you mean the devil won't show up and Balkan just kind of looks at him Yes, I'd like to point out that this also has a terrible backdrop of a window. <laughs> yeah, he's on like he's on like the the top story of 
this penthouse where it's, Vulcan lives. It's terrible. Like, I don't know if Polanski just didn't have any fucking money or He might not what? have. Johnny it's... Depp normally charged about $10 million to do a movie. But again, he was so excited to do a movie with Roman Polanski that he didn't charge him $10 million. So he thinks, he must assume that two of these three that are in circulation are forgeries and only one of them is real and he he's worried that his is a forgery so what he's doing is he's hiring corso johnny depp to take his copy of the book and compare it to the other two copies to find out which one is the real one and if he can determine any of the three are real getting that book for him at all costs yeah to which he says, that sounds illegal. And he goes, I've, I, n- I never knew you did not want to do something illegal. And he says, not that illegal. <laughs> and he says, hence the size of the check. Right. So where did Balkan get his copy of the book? He got it from the man who we saw commit suicide in the first scene. Yes. So he sold the copy to Balkan. Before he killed himself. Yeah, this man is Telfer. That this So, Balkan has the Telfer copy of the book. Johnny Depp goes to Telfer's widow. She m- tells the story of how it was one of his most treasured possessions. I can't believe you have it. It looks like you're a book detective. Where did he get it? He got it in Toledo, Spain. He was so excited. And Johnny Depp asks her, did he ever try it? And she goes, I can't see him chanting mumbo jumbo. He was just a book collector. Uh-huh. And so Johnny Depp leaves. So he's worried what's going to happen with this book. He thinks there's a lot of heat on it and something's going to happen. So he leaves it with his bookseller buddy, Bernie. Um, the woman, Bernie's books. <laughs> the woman will show up. And seduce Johnny Depp. Twice and then disappear. She keeps showing up. Oh, places. the girl, the girl. Yes, I thought we were talking about Lena Olin, Telfer's widow. Widow. Oh, they have sex, and then Johnny Depp's a dick to her. Yeah, and she kicks him out. No, no, no. She tries to find the book, and she's like, "Where's the book?" And oh, it's like, "What are you talking about?" <laughs> because she was under the impression that they were having sex, so that he would give her the book. Yeah. Uh huh. But Johnny Depp never agreed to that. He just agreed <laughs> to having sex. He's a piece of shit. But, and, but she, she's a piece but of she's shit also too. Evil, <laughs> yeah. So who cares? Then there's the girl. She will show up and then twice disappear. in the library while he's researching it. <laughs> yeah, there's two moments where it's one of those show up. Oh, I don't have my glasses on. Let me put my glasses on. Oh, she's not there. Oh, I see her on the other side of this bookshelf. But when I walk around the bookshelf, she's not there. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> He comes home to find his home ransacked. That is why he takes it to the guy he works with and leaves it with him. Because he thinks he's being followed. He's about to get on a plane to Spain. And he needs to stop by Bernie's bookstore to get the book. And when he goes there, he finds the door is unlocked. And Bernie is hanging dead from his leg. And he's hanging just like one of the engravings in the book. The Nine Gates of the Kingdom of Shadows. So Bernie is dead, but Johnny Depp knows where he would have hid the book, and he finds it behind a painting of, like, a horse or something like that. So he gets the book, and he gets on the plane, and he goes to Spain, where he meets the 
Chinesa brothers or whatever their name is. They're these two twin brothers who restore books. And they're the ones that originally sold the copy of this book to Telfer. And Johnny Depp is trying to get the backstory on the book and to determine if they did anything to the book. Did they restore it at all? Or do they have any inkling that it might be a forgery? And they're like, nah, dog, this is totally legit. This is absolutely real. It was Mrs. Telfer who wanted it. Exactly. And that's where we're like, oh, okay, that's why she's so upset. That's why she wants the book back. He didn't give a rat's ass about the book. And we'll find out more about this as the movie goes. But Mr. Telfer, he didn't care about the book. He bought it for her, which is why she was so upset to find out that he sold it. Did he actually sell it? We never find out. They point out an interesting thing that they found is that not all of the engravings are signed a T for Torquia, right? Three of them are signed LCF. It's like, LCF, what does that mean? And they're like, think. <laughs> and he said, Lucifer? And they're like, yeah, ah, ding, 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 ding. Only six of the nine engravings were signed by Aristide Torquia. Yes. And the other three? But this is one of them. L-C-F. Who's L-C-F? Think. Lucifer? Very perceptive of you, senor. Torquia was burnt alive because he wrote this book in collaboration with someone else. Come on, you can't honestly believe The man who wrote this book destroyed an alliance with the devil and went to the stake for it. Even hell has its heroes, senor. (laughs) And he's like, okay, fine, sure. Lucifer did three of these engravings, whatever. Just like people say that the Bible is written by man and God, this book was written by a man and Satan. They co-authored the book together. That's why three of these engravings are signed LCF. So he leaves, and as he's leaving this, what do you call it, you know, rafters that are that are set up to do construction work or painting or whatever fall over and almost crush him. And we get some bad green screen. <laughs> so on the train to Portugal, he runs into the girl again. And he's like, he kind of calls her on it. You're following me. You're working for Balkan. And she's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> and she plays dumb. And he's like, well, I'm sure I'll see you again. And she's like, okay, whatever. Yep. So he talks to Victor Fargus, drives out to the middle of nowhere where his estate is, and takes a look at his book. And Fargus is really excited because Corso, Johnny Depp, has the Telfer copy of the book. And they can compare them together. Like, these books are never in the same place at the same time. And so he asks, hey, can I compare them? And dude's like, yeah, that's fine. While he's comparing them. He also tells him before he opens it, some books are not to be opened with impunity. Yes. This guy kind of doesn't really believe in all this shit, but he still, like, respects it. Mm -hmm. So while Johnny Depp is reviewing the books and comparing them... Vargas gets a phone call, and we don't know who it is or what the conversation was about. What Corso notices is that, oh, the keys in this engraving that this monk is holding, they're in a different hand in this one. Oh, there's this entryway that's walled off in one book and not in the other. 
And then he looks at the engravings and he sees that different engravings are signed LCF and AT. And so he writes out a grid of the numbered engravings and versus LCF and AT in each of the three copies. And he's seen two of them. So, so far he's found six of the nine engravings that are signed LCF and they're all slightly different than the AT version. When he leaves that guy's house, he is almost attacked by some random person. Uh huh. But then he gets saved by the girl on a motorcycle who drives that dude off. And then they leave. <laughs> well, he's left on his own. Yes. And he walks back. And when he gets back to his hotel, he notices that she's sitting in the lounge reading a copy of how to win friends and influence people now the reason that she's reading how to win friends and influence people is because that famously is one of the books that charlie manson read and and used to try to ingratiate himself to others and get them to do what he wanted charles manson's followers are the ones that killed the pregnant sharon tate who was Roman Polanski's wife. Although... So he included that in his movie, which is weird. Although, if you believe what's been written in such books as Mindhunter, Manson actually didn't really have anything to do with... With the Sharon Tate murder. With Sharon Tate's murder. The other ones after that, yes, but not the Sharon Tate one. They went off and did that on their own. Mm -hmm. Which is an interesting conversation to have. Maybe read Mindhunter. Yes. If you like the TV show, you should read the book. Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh -huh. It's very good. In the middle of the night, actually early, early in the morning, the girl wakes up Johnny Depp by banging on his door, and he's like, what's going on? It's like, oh, it's it's morning, but it's not light yet. We need to go now before anyone else wakes up. He's like, what are you talking about? And she's like, just come with me. And they end up going to Vargas's estate again. Oh, and we should also mention that he has reported back to... Balkan. So Balkan knows that the guy has a different copy. Right. Yeah. He knows exactly what the difference is. And he's like, get that copy for me. So they go to the estate and first nobody answers. And she's like, well, he's not inside. And he's like, well, where is he? And she points to his fountain and he goes to the fountain and he sees Fargus dead underwater in the fountain. He's like, oh, fuck. I would also like to point out that on the drive over on her motorcycle, Johnny Depp didn't have a fucking helmet on. Yeah, it's Europe. <laughs> Do you know how disgusting that would be? Or how awful that would be? Disgusting. All the bugs and shit? Well, you're you're behind the person in front of you. That wouldn't really happen. I would just unnerve me. The fact that I'd be going so fast, not strapped into anything, and not protected from It'd anything. It'd be freezing. Yeah. Maybe. But again, you're behind somebody. So he breaks in and he lets her in and he notices that the book is missing from where it's supposed to be, that it's in the fireplace and he takes it with him. He later notices that when he opens it up, the pages with the engravings have been ripped out. Mm -hmm. He starts asking the girl questions and she says, you're wasting time asking these questions. And he goes, well, I want to know someone is playing a game with me. And she says, of course, you're part of it, and you're beginning to like it. Yeah. Which was a fun little line. Someone's playing a game with me. 
So he goes to Paris next to visit Baroness Kessler, who has the Kessler copy. Also, she has the Kessler Library, which is the largest collection of books about Satan. She explains that she saw the devil when she was 15 and it was love at first sight. Uh-huh. Which is a weird thing to say. And they never explain that. <laughs> yeah. The fuck does that mean? When she figures out that he's working for Balkan, she kicks him out immediately. And he calls Balkan back and Balkan's like, you have to get in there and look at that copy of the book. And he's like, well, how? Have you seen her secretary? Who's like this giant of a woman. Balkan says, well, then wait for the lunch hour. And so he does. He waits for her to take her lunch break. And then he goes upstairs. He confronts Baroness Kessler. And he's like, look, this is what I'm, this is the reason I brought it up. The engravings are different. There are discrepancies between the books. And she's like, how dare you accuse me of having a forged copy of this book? And he's like, no, no, no. I think all three of them are real. But there are differences between them. And here, let me show you. He has photocopies of his version of the book, which he hid behind the refrigerator in his hotel room. And she, intrigued, checks out her copy of the book and compares them and sees that there are differences. And he's like, can I please scour your book to see if I can find anything else? And she agrees. During this time, she tells him about the Order of the Silver Serpent. Yes. We didn't mention earlier, but when he had sex with the widow, she had a tattoo of a silver serpent. So we assume that she is in it. And we are correct to assume that. Yes. So she explains that the Order of the Silver Serpent is for rich, famous people who have jaded sexual appetites. They have big orgies. And she says... If Telfer ever finds out what his wife does, he'll probably kill himself. And Johnny Depp responds with, he did. (laughs) (laughs) She also says to him, you don't know what you're getting yourself into. And he says, it's already too late. I'd like to point out that the music here is a little much. Yeah. It gets way over the top in these scenes. Then there is a chase scene, which goes on for way too long. Who is he being chased by? Telfer's right-hand man. At one point, the girl flies. Yes, so... (laughs) And then she'll continue to fly after that? This guy is after Corso. They get into a fight, and the girl shows up, and she sort of glides down the stairs. (laughs) And the thing is, is that Corso doesn't see this, and that's important. That means that the audience sees it, and it's... It's not to be tainted by what Corso may or may not see, which implies that this is actually happening. She can fly. Okay. (laughs) Which we know, if you can fly and you're a woman, you're a witch. Yeah. (laughs) So she kicks this other dude's ass and saves Corso. And during this time, we see that her eyes are pulsing. Yeah. Around the point where he's sitting in the old woman's library and she tells him, "Don't nobody smokes in my library. Right around that point, I wrote down, I don't like this scene. I don't like the score. I don't like the set design. 
I don't like Depp's performance. <laughs> like, I just all around do not enjoy this movie. I think it's an interesting story. I like the intrigue, yeah. But the movie itself is garbage. I don't know if I'd say garbage. Garbage is a little strong. We've seen way worse movies than this. Like, way worse Yes, movies. Yes, way worse in that... They are made by filmmakers who don't know how to make a movie. So you're saying that because we know Roman Polanski can make Rosemary's Baby, what the hell is he doing making this movie? Yes. I think he just didn't have money. Or resources. It's got to be what it was because this is – this set design alone, oh, it's so bad. And the lighting is so – so off-putting, and the score is stupid, and Depp's performance is bad. All I can say is it's 1999, <laughs> and almost every movie was like that <laughs> around this time. And of course, I'm being facetious, but, you know, we had movies like Stigmata, End of Days End with of Arnold Days. Schwarzenegger. Yeah, like, these movies were all over the place at the time. And I kind of love that. It, it's it's something that I cherish. Not because they're great. I don't think they're fantastic movies at all. I just... I love... I, I love Satan. Hail Satan! No, I mean, like, I love these sorts of, like, late 90s, early 2000s, dark, satanic kind of thriller movies. It's It's totally my jam. I think a lot of them have have potential and they just were all squandered. <laughs> sure. I know. I'll give you that. So okay. anyway. So. He's in there. He gets there. knocked out. Yeah. He's, he's in her library and comparing the books and then we cut back to where she is and she's gone. And then we see this long POV shot coming up behind Johnny Depp and it's coming very slowly. And then we get his point of view, which is confusing falling into the book because he gets hit by something Mm -hmm. he wakes up and the place is on fire and he hears a thumping sound and the thumping is let me get her name right baroness kessler in her wheelchair thudding into a a wall she had been strangled to death And when he spins her around and he's like, ah, and he lets go of her, she drives off right into the fire again. Yeah, I was just like, Jesus Christ. Yeah. He finds the book and tries to save it from the fire. It doesn't matter. The engravings have already been taken out anyway. He makes it back to his hotel room to find his copy stolen. And when he comes downstairs and he talks to the concierge like, um... Who was in my room? And he says, nobody, just your wife. And he's like, I'm not fucking married. Describe her to me. (sighs) And when he describes her, it's Telfer, the widow Telfer. He's like, son of a bitch. And the concierge that he knows, that he's actually friends with, and asked him to actually look for Telfer, shows up and is like, oh, that reminds me. I did find her. Here is where she's staying. So he grabs the girl who's also there now. And they go and they try to find Telfer. But she well, is checking out. First, he, he he's like, where is it to the girl? And she's like, would I be here if I took it? Yeah. And then, like, he, he they're going He to- asks the concierge, is it her? And he says, no. That's when he describes Telfer. Yeah. And then they're going 
they're going together to see Telfer, and she asks him, what are you going to do if, like, somebody comes after you? And he's like, probably hide behind you. Yeah. <laughs> Which I thought was cute. she does totally kick ass. And then she just steals a car. <laughs> yes. And they, they race off after Telfer and her man, her bodyguard. And they end up losing them. And just as they're about to turn around, the girl stops the car. She's the one driving and asks him, what did you say her maiden name was? Because he does give her maiden name to that concierge to look for her in case she's checking into hotels under her maiden name. And he says, Saint Martin. And she points and right in front of them is a road sign that says St. Martin and a direction. It's a small town in France. So they follow the directions to the town of St. Martin and they get there and the place is deserted. They find this man preparing his bake for the next day. And they ask him where the St. Martin Chateau or whatever is. And he points them and, and they head off in that direction. And the place is jumping in a way. There's candles marking the driveways and everything. They manage to sneak their way onto the property where tons of people are showing up. They're showing up in robes and stuff like that. They It's very eyes wide shut. Yes. They climb to the second floor where they find Telfer getting ready and she's putting on this pentagram necklace and everything and they break in and they hold her at gunpoint. So the bodyguard comes in and holds them at gunpoint and now it's a standoff, but Telfer and her bodyguard have the upper hand. The bodyguard takes them downstairs because she doesn't want them killed in her room because it would make a mess. Which is always the case. They never stick around. They never just kill somebody. They always got to take them someplace else and give them the opportunity to escape. Mm -hmm. So Telfer goes off in her robe. And what we're finding is that this is the Silver Serpent cult. And they're trying to... They've been following around after Torquia and his books ever since Torquia was burned at the stake. And... Kessler, Baroness Kessler is like, ah, it's a bunch of bullshit. I dropped out, you know, so did What's-His-Face, and it's total bullshit. They don't even have a legit copy if it wasn't for the Telfer copy. But now the Telfer went to Balkan, so what the fuck are they going to do? Well, now, of course, she stole it back and she has it. So they're taken down to the basement and the bodyguard holds the gun too close, as they fucking always do, people... You have a gun on somebody. Stand more than just one arm's length away from them. Okay? Your reaction time is limited. So holding it that close won't help you at all. And you're just making it easier for somebody to try to disarm you. Which is exactly what they do. And Corso just smashes the bodyguard's face in with a shoe. <laughs> and the girl said, I didn't think you had it in you. So they get his robe on and he comes to the ceremony and he gets into the crowd while the girl watches from the balcony. But before he can do anything, Balkan comes in. He's like, yeah, 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 blah, blah, blah. <laughs> this is all bullshit. He, all he's just like mumbo jumbo. A bunch of, well, because she had called it that earlier. Yeah. Mumbo jumbo. <laughs> oh, yes, yeah, 
Mumbo Jumbo. Mumbo Jumbo. Mumbo Jumbo. Mumbo Jumbo. You're a bunch of buffoons. You're just rotting flesh fucking or whatever it is. And he's just like, and then he then he gets really mad at Telfer because he's like, you at least understand what you have here. You're a charlatan. And then he just straight up murders her in yes. front of all of these people. Portia was going to do something, but the girl flies down from the balcony and stops him. <laughs> and Balkan strangles her with her pentagram necklace and everyone freaks out and runs. And, and the girl- he's like, why, wait, why did you do that? Why did you stop me? And she says- He just killed someone in public. You're off the hook. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because he's killed. Uh, he's been implicated in the murders of several people, including the other two owners of the books. And now this bodyguard whom he actually did kill. Now he's off the hook because Balkan's just killing people willy-nilly in public and people can see him. Balkan doesn't care because now he has all nine of the LCF engravings and he runs off. Johnny Depp tries to chase after him, but he ends up getting the car that he stole trapped in a river that he can't get through. And so he's walking and walking and walking and walking and walking until he finally ends up staying at like this pub in thing. And he looks at, a postcard that he found. It was from Balkan to Telfer saying, I made it here first. You know, it's beautiful or whatever. And so he asked them, Hey, do you know what this is? The people that work at this pub and the, the, the woman grabs her husband or whatever. And the husband shows him in this like tourist guide where this place is. And this place is uh, Chateau Puyver, which is, the devil's tower is what they call it. This was used as a defense castle by the Cathars during one of the crusades in the 13th century. Pope Innocent the third thought that they were Satan worshipers, but they weren't, they were just Gnostic Christians. It's a real place. And so he ends up going there and he finds Balkan already there. He falls through the floor in the scuffle, and Balkan's like, I don't really care. You can stay and watch this. You can be privileged enough to see what's about to happen. You can't come with me. I must travel alone, but you may look on and marvel. It's very kind of you. Indeed, it is. There have been men who have been burned alive or disemboweled for just a glimpse of what you are about to witness. Because he figures he's going to die in the fire, so fuck it. Yeah, and so he lays out all the engravings, and there are nine of them, and he he says basically what they translate to when you put them in the right order, and that is to travel in silence by a long and circuitous route to brave the arrows of misfortune and fear neither noose nor fire, both of which we've seen plenty of in this movie. To play the greatest of all games and win, foregoing no expense, which Balkan did not, is to mock the vicissitudes of fate and gain at last the key that will unlock the ninth gate. This location supposing to be the ninth gate there in front of this archway here, where Balkan expects Satan to show up and offer him everlasting life. What do we know about deals with the devil? It comes at a price. Yeah, usually your soul. 
and you get all the power in the world. Sometimes. For 10 to 20 years. Sometimes. <laughs> and then Satan comes back and he takes your soul forever. Yes. And part of your punishment, apparently, is that you must curse God for all eternity. And so you can never be redeemed. So you're just stuck in hell forever. So like 10 to 20 years is not that much when compared to eternity, but people still do this shit. The idea is that people are so consumed with their desires that they yes. have no concept of forever versus 20 years. Right, exactly. So Johnny Depp's still struggling and Balkan lights a ring of fire and says his prayer to Satan and then he puts his hands in the fire and is like, look, I'm not burned. Johnny Depp's like, Kay. fucking prove it. <laughs> right? And so he's like, you know what? I will. And he pours the gasoline all over his body and then he starts to light up and he's like, ha ha, I don't feel anything. Wait, what's that <laughs> and he starts to burn and he freaks out and he screams and he he dies in the fire Johnny Depp manages to he falls through the floor climbs the stairs back up to that room and he saves all the engravings and then he gets out there outside he finds the girl and they fuck mm-hmm when she, there's this it's very good, it's a good sex scene. Yeah. I'll uh-huh. say it's a good sex scene. She looks she looks into it. Yeah. And, uh, and then there's intense. the fire. It's a good one. <laughs> it's intense. And what they're what they're doing is every one of these moments that we see, like his bookstore guy, Bernie, he's hanging by his leg. Like all these moments in the engravings are happening in here. And one of those moments is fucking outside a burning castle. Now here's the thing. The idea I feel like they're trying to communicate is that this whole time, Johnny Depp's character was fated to do this. And so... I think it's more that he's proven himself. I guess. But it's not like Depp... Depp certainly didn't kill his friend and put him in that position, you know? Depp isn't the one who created the fire. Depp isn't the one who faced off with the the noose. Like, all of this stuff was done for him, assuming that all of these things had to happen for the Ninth Gate to appear. It's kind of like, like I said, Depp was fated to do this, and so all of these things kind of happened around him, even though he had nothing to do with it. I don't think there's anything that says he has to cause these things to happen. These things just need to happen. They don't have to be about him. They just need to happen. He wakes up She's gone. Written on one of the engravings is the name of the twins from Spain. And it's right on top of one of the engravings. Like, wow, okay, they just don't give a fuck about the engraving. And so he goes there and he finds that they're gone. And we have two twin construction type guys that are cleaning the place completely out. Now, the two twin book restorers and the two twin movers are all just one dude. Oh, an actor. No, he's like a sound engineer or a lighting guy or a cameraman or something like that. But it's still one person. Yes, is what just you're one saying. actor playing all four roles. I thought you were saying like all four roles were one person. No, I was no, like, no, what's no, happening? No, no, no. <laughs> Played by one person. And when they're moving this giant bookshelf, off slides this one sheet. And it's the engraving. Oh. One of the nine engravings was still a forgery. And it was one of the ones that was in the Telfer copy of the book. 
because that's the one that these twin restorers had in the first place, which is why Balkan's deal with the devil did not work. So there's the explanation there. Johnny, I mean, don't you assume that the girl works for the devil and so oh, she I was think helping she him is the, the whole devil, time? Actually, <laughs> yeah. So yes. I mean. He was chosen. He was selected. Right, but he's kind of a bad person, but he's not... Everything he's doing, he's not doing for power. At a certain point, it would be in his best interest to stop. Well, he's doing it for money. (laughs) No, no, no. What I'm saying is, like, he's told at one point... Balkan tells him, go back to my office when you get back to New York... And there'll be a check waiting for you. Your work is done. There's literally nothing else you can do. Johnny Depp doesn't stop, proving that it's not the money that he's doing this for anymore. And it's not his own personal power, but it's to find the truth. If you look to Satan as a truth bearer, that's what he's looking for. That's why he picks Johnny Depp and not Balkan or anyone in the Silver Serpents. Walks through a painting! (laughs) This this engraving is the one that has the fucking outside the burning castle <laughs> on it. Of the same, and it's a picture of the woman. Yeah, and it's definitely her. Yeah. So he goes back to that castle, and he walks into the gate. And Kelsey, what's your problem with the gate? It's just a big painting! Yes. <laughs> the effects aren't that great. They're terrible. And it just ends that way. Basically, it ends with him completing the ritual where Balkan could not and being able to pass through the ninth gate. And that's literally where the movie ends, because the movie is not about what happens to Johnny Depp after he makes the deal. It's about the mystery leading up to the deal and why is it that he's capable of accomplishing this. What comes after is not what the movie's about. It'd be boring if a movie... Just sat down and just, just like the director sat down in front of the camera and just explained every last loose end. Especially when it's not what the movie's about. Lightning round, Kelsey. Just kind of one quick thing. Uh, when he has sex with Telfer's widow, I really enjoy their little conversation that they have. She is offering him money for the book. And she says, I have a great deal of money. You're a mercenary. That's all you care about. And then when he, when she realizes and he, that he's not going to go for that, he's like, I'm getting money from Balkan, you know? Right, yeah. And he's, he's, he, he does things for money. He is a mercenary. But once he's made a deal, he's not going to back out on that deal because somebody offers him more. But she says, well, I could give you extra that Balkan can't give you. And he doesn't really say anything. And she goes, you've seen this before. It's happened in movies. <laughs> and they they end up having sex. I mean, look, verbally, he kind of is agreeing to give her the book if they have sex. But he yeah. never actually he says, says that. He says no. And then she sexually attacks him. And then he just goes along with it. So I think, I mean, it doesn't matter. These are two awful people who treat sex as transactional, which is fine if that's what they want to do, but they didn't come to an agreement before they completed the sex, so there is no fucking agreement. But when they're done and It's she's, a fucking agreement. But when they're done, she's like, you know, where's the book? 
And he's, or where is it? And he's like, where's what? <laughs> and she goes, don't fuck with me. And he goes, I thought I already did. Like, what a fucking bastard. He's awful. And so is she. Yes. She hits him over the head with a bottle. She bites him in the chest. Yes. She, he like is trying to push her off of him. And so she just straight up bites him. <laughs> and I kind of love his response of like, holy shit. Did you just fucking bite me? Oh. But that's it. The Nine Gates of the Kingdom of Shadows is actually a fake book. It never existed, which obviously, right? Uh, the engravings were actually in the original book of the Club Dumas. So Arturo Perez Reverte is the one who had those engravings commissioned. And they make it into this movie as well. But they weren't made for the movie. I thought that that was kind of interesting. There's a phrase on the book that says cum superiorum privilegio veniaque, which means with permission and license of one's superiors, which is basically saying, hey, I did this with the help and permission of the devil. That's about it. That's all I wanted to say. Okay. Kelsey, what do you think this movie has on Rotten Tomatoes? 48? 43%. Even though the film is stylish and atmospheric, critics say the Ninth Gate meanders aimlessly and is often ludicrous. Yep. And despite the advertising, there's hardly any chills. Yep. Metacritic of 44, cinema score of D minus. Mm-hmm. Ouch. Roger Ebert said, while at the end I didn't yearn for spectacular special effects, I did wish for spectacular information. Mm-hmm. Something awesome, not just a fade to white. Mm. And he was upset by the ending. Again, I think that that's not what the movie's about. And we can throw a bunch of stuff in the movies that you would want to see. What if there was a purple dragon? That would be dope. But it's not the place for this movie. You know what I mean? Like, that's not what the movie's about. Why would we just throw in superfluous stuff? Because it's stuff you want to see. There's plenty of stuff you want to see that doesn't belong in the movie. Sure. I disagree with Roger Ebert here. I can understand why he feels that way, but I disagree with him that it belongs in the movie. What he's saying is that he feels like, and I think you're saying the same thing, that you were led to want to see what happens here by the movie and then let down by it. Exactly. And I I totally get that. I just personally don't feel that way because I – I didn't really care. Whatever they were going to come up with would probably would have been ridiculous anyway. And I wouldn't want to see it. <laughs> it probably would be. Do you think that this movie is overrated or underrated? It's pretty close to what I'm going to give it. So maybe slightly overrated. Really? What would you give it? I'm going to give it a 35. Wow. Jesus. We are just disagreeing left, right, and center lately. I'm going to give it a 70. Oh, my God. I love this movie. <laughs> so fucking high. It's so much fun. I mean, I gave it's that really not. I gave that to the mist. Boring. Kelsey. I gave it to the mist. I gave the same score to the mist, which you also didn't like. Yep. So it's not like I'm like I liked the movie. So it needs to be on the plus side of fifty, and that's already way far away from what you're giving it. So there is no scenario where I'm not going to give it a much higher score than you are. I don't think it's as good as, you know, some of the other movies that I gave in the mid-70s. But I don't think it's 60s material either. I think this is, it's and it's very much because of me. This is very much just 
sort of my jam. I guess that's the same with me in haunted houses and yeah. 80s slashers. Uh-huh. <laughs> but I just think this movie is just bad. Like I, I think I it's legitimately bad. <laughs> I totally get it. I, I 100% get it. Which is why I would also understand if listeners out there, if you didn't like it either or decided not to watch it. I totally get it. I kind of like it on, like, the 35% is kind of an on, on an ironic level. Like, I kind of love the fact that she flies. <laughs> <laughs> That's so Even cheesy. though it looks so silly. It's so silly. I kind of love it, like, uh-huh. how silly it is. And I, I love the sex scenes. Not because, well, hers is hot, but, like, I love his with her, the other chick, because it's like, don't fuck with me. <laughs> I thought I already did. Like, it's hilarious. <laughs> Look at me. I can put my hands in fire and nothing happens. Oh my god, I'm burning! <laughs> I like the idea of hating a character initially, but then growing to like him. In the beginning, when you really dislike him, he's bad. But when you grow to like him at the end, he's in fact worse. Before we move on to our next film, Kelsey, horror trivia. What is the name of the possessed doll in Child's Play? So, there's a couple of answers to this. I'm assuming that they want Chucky, because that's the name of the specific doll. Is that not the answer they're looking for? That is the answer, but they have another one in parentheses. He's a, um, not a my buddy, but he's a um, good guy. What is the name of the person who lives inside the doll? Charles Lee Ray. There you go. Yeah. (laughs) All right, Kelsey. Okay, this one I'm not sure you'll actually get, but since we were talking about Rosemary's Baby, mm-hmm. what? I'll be so mad if you ask me a question about Rosemary's Baby and I don't know the answer. You might you might not know the answer to this one. It's going to be like about the person who made the score or something, no. isn't it? <laughs> nope. Okay. You might know it. I don't know. I honestly don't know if you're going to get this or not. Okay. What is Rosemary and Guy's surname? Woodhouse. Boom! That's what I'm saying. I had no idea if you'd know that or not. So there you go. Good job, Kelsey. I never would have gotten that. Man, you didn't even have to think about it. No. All right. On to our next movie, which is 2017's The Ascent. This was recommended to us by Peter. Uh, Thank you very much, Peter. Peter is one of those folks that um, has written us emails a couple times and that I feel really, really awful for only getting back to a couple of those because they're really incredible. And I love emailing back and forth with with Peter. And I'm really, really sorry, Peter, that I don't do that. I haven't responded in like forever because he has some really cool shit that we get to talk about. And I love it. He recommended The Ascent, which is written and directed by Tom Murtaugh, starring Miguel Perez, Stephen Buchanan, Sam Rod, and Amber Waller, which is what they call a micro-budget indie film. It was made for about 15 grand, uh, and that is it. A little less than half of that, $6,785 of which, was raised via a Kickstarter-esque website called SeedAndSpark.com. This is a very hard one to find because it is so painfully indie, like really hard to find. After the fact, I go back to this email that Peter sent and he says, okay, well, you have to type in the ascent, otherwise it just won't find it. And depending on where you go, even if you do that, it just will not find it. And it's impossible to find this movie. So I 
put in our Twitter links to the IMDb page and the Amazon Prime link for where you can find this movie if you want to uh, watch it. Kelsey, what is this movie about? A homicide detective is looking into a murder of a woman, and he thinks it's this guy that they found skateboarding nearby with a bunch of blood on him. He takes the guy in to question him, and the guy's story is that he is, in fact, the devil's younger brother. Should people watch this movie? I'm going to say no. I think I'm going to say no as well. I Uh, would much rather watch Frailty. I'm sorry, Peter. (laughs) Well, I think there's a lot of really cool stuff going on in this movie. There's some interesting things. Yeah, and there's some really good performances from some specific, well, I would say one specific person. And are you going to say the devil's brother? No, the detective. Thank God. (laughs) And, and the movie unfortunately has a lot of things going against it. And I think we'll get into that as we go over what's actually happening in the movie. Ultimately, I would have to say, no, you don't have to watch this one, but it is free on Amazon Prime if you're curious about it. And I think the concepts here are really interesting. And I think, again, I wrote down here that this movie feels very much like it could have and maybe should have been like a one act play instead of a film. It's all done in what what could have been a single location. The extra locations that they film in are 100% unnecessary. And it could have been like a waiting for Godot kind of like two dudes sitting in the same place and talking. And that could have been the performance the whole entire time. I can picture it in my head. How they would do scene transitions, how they would do his one-man show thing. Like, I can picture all of this in my head. And it feels very much like something I did write and would have written in, like, a college creative writing course. (laughs) Do you remember? I I took creative writing in college, of course, like so many other people did. A buddy of mine just found an assignment that we wrote together, and he sent me a picture of it. And what did the teacher write on it? I don't know. It was A+. I'm sorry because I don't even have any comments to make this. Oh, yeah. But, like, that's the sort of thing. This feels like it would be A-plus college creative writing caliber stuff. I don't think that translates to the fact that this is this dude's first feature movie, and it really shows. (laughs) So there's some interesting ideas with some kind of poor execution. And I think that's the difference here. We'll talk all about it for you. And if you're curious why we think that way, we'll explain it when we talk about 2017's The Ascent. Did I hear singing earlier? I thought I heard Danny Boy. I could have sworn. You ever listen to the words of Danny Boy? I mean, really listen. Morbid. For if you come when all the leaves are fallen, and I am dead, for dead I well may be, then you will come to the place where I am lying, and you will kneel and say an ave there for me. 911, what's your emergency? There's someone in my house. What's your name? Olivia Renowitz. What's your address, Olivia? 734 Montague Street. Oh my god. 
Kelsey, can you tell us how the ascent gets started? It opens on a quote from the Bible about Satan falling like lightning. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Luke ten eighteen. It opens with a story about a murder known as the Brown Dahlia because a woman on the rise of becoming a rock star was murdered. She was Hispanic. She was murdered, and they never found her. And And it's the opposite of the Black Dahlia, because the Black Dahlia, the human body was completely drained of blood. Whereas in this, there was no body, but there was all the blood. And this will get brought up several times throughout the movie. It's like a documentary element, almost. Which seems interesting. I just wish it was incorporated in some way. It is in the end. No, the story is, but the fact that it's a documentary format. Oh, yeah. Then we cut to a cop interviewing a young man who believes that he killed this other dude named Kaleem Roberts. He believes that he killed him because he stole his girlfriend from him. He ends up being right. Yeah. And we get to see the the our main detective, our main character, Henry Cardenas, doing his interrogation thing that he's oh so good at. Yeah, he's almost beaten some records. He's tied the record for number of confessions at some crazy number. One more, and he breaks the record. Which again, people... Never speak to a police officer without a lawyer present. I literally have this, ask for a lawyer, as like my first note. Only word out of your mouth should be lawyer. Yeah. Ever, ever, ever. I don't care if you're guilty or not. Uh, who is it? I, somebody talks about how everyone thinks that if they just talk to the cops, that they'll clarify things and then they'll clear everything up. Lawyer up. You can't handle that shit. Everybody's like, I'm going to talk to the cops and straighten this whole thing out. You're going to do 25 to life. Have fun with that, man. <laughs> Nobody asked for a lawyer. I've seen 300 people get interrogated on this show. Two of them were like, can I talk to a lawyer? And both times the detectives were like, fuck! <laughs> you are going to cops want go a to prison. Yeah, they, they want you to confess. It would be easier for them. And they think... And, you know, they may be right even most of the time, but they think that that's because you're guilty. If they can pin it on you, that's because you're guilty. Not circumstantial at all. It's just you must be guilty. So you need a defense to that. The cops are doing their job. Do yours. Do yours. <laughs> I know we've definitely said this on the show before, but we seriously, seriously mean it. <laughs> He's also with his partner, Frank Oslo. These two guys are played by Miguel Perez and Sam Rod, respectively. The guy ends up confessing to killing Kaleem, but in a weird way. He says, I drew the gun, yes. 
He laughed at me when I drew the gun and said that I wouldn't shoot him. And the cop goes, so you shot him? And he says, no, I didn't. The gun shot itself. And then you shot him. No. Yes. You shot him. No! The gun shot itself. It wasn't me. I didn't mean to. The gun shot itself. Which, because this has to do with the devil, you might be thinking, oh, maybe the devil is involved in these murder." No. 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 <laughs> I mean, it's interesting that they kind of leave it like that as it is, because he might actually genuinely feel that way. But I mean, he's it, just fucking, he just doesn't want to admit it, and that's all it is. Because the idea here is that people never admit what they do. Well, I think the issue is, is that, I, I don't think that is the deal, because the whole thing leading up to this is him getting people to admit what they do, so obviously people admit things. I think it's more that, in this particular instance, he didn't have the immediate murderous intent, he didn't want it to get to this place, so he's denying it to himself. I don't think it's that, oh, I totally did it, and I'm just going to lie to try to get out of it. I think it's more that he can't believe that it happened, and this is the only explanation that makes sense to him. Then we see a dork on a skateboard. <laughs> yeah. And that's all we get for a second yeah. of him on a skateboard. And we get our guy Hank. He, everyone in the station is cheering for him because he just uh, made the record, and he's about to retire. They all want to take him out to celebrate, but he never goes out and celebrates. He just wants to go on his hike. He has heart problems, and he hikes. We'll find out later that these two things have absolutely nothing to do with one another. He doesn't hike because he has heart problems. These two things just happen to coexist. And when he goes out to start his hike, he gets a call from his partner, Sam Rod, saying that there's been a murder and they've got a guy in there and they want him to come back to get the confession out of him. That way he'll beat the record and they'll get this confession. So that dork we saw on a skateboard, uh-huh. we see him again and now he's covered in blood. And the cops come up to him. He's the one that they're going to bring in. And this is important. <laughs> The cops come up to him, and they chase him, and he runs away. Get to the end of this, there's no reason for him to run away. Yeah. But he runs away, <laughs> and he gets caught, and so Frank, the partner, is like, this is an open and shut case. He has He's covered in blood. Like, we got him. But so they haven't just- done they haven't done DNA testing yet. So and they, they haven't done their investigation of the crime scene, so uh, Henry shows up at the crime scene with Frank, and he introduces him to Regina, who is a bartender slash reporter, and she wants to do a story on him, and Henry Hank has always said no, and at this point, he's like, fine, because she's like there, and Frank's begging him, and he's like, fine, whatever, so they go inside and we get in we get actually a kind of interesting scene of them exploring around the crime scene. It's ultimately unnecessary. All this is doing is just setting up what a good and experienced cop that Hank is. 
they just go around the crime scene and he's saying, okay, this happened here and this is where the stab happened. And then, and then he lays down next to the dead body and looks at her in the face, which is weird. They go to the station to interrogate the suspect. There's a bunch of things that you've kind of skipped. Mm-hmm. So I'm just going to quickly say them. Yeah. The guy who wants him to speak to the reporter is very obviously interested in her. Yeah. At the end of the movie, you find out that he's married. Has a kid. And, like, loves his family. So, like, was he planning on cheating on his wife or not? I think so. Okay. He leaves because there's some sort of family emergency, not because, oh, I love my family. And, you know, he probably does. He would say he loves his family, but it's not going to stop him from fucking cheating on him. When he first chooses to speak, when our cop, Vince, chooses to speak with the reporter for the first time, he explains that he takes his meds, he has now quit smoking, he hikes. When she says, I heard you had a heart attack, then she's like, what about your family? And he's like, if you already knew I had a heart attack, then you already know I have had a divorce. And she's like, okay, but what is your number one thing. And he says, keep them talking. You gotta have patience. Eventually you'll get remorse out of them. See, because keep them talking means that you go off topic a lot. So patience is key. But it all pays off when you get that that feeling from them. What feeling? (sighs) Remorse. Which is a weird thing to say because not a lot of killers have remorse. Well, that's why you keep them talking. Well, I think you're you're confusing criminals with psychopaths and sociopaths. Not every criminal, actually not even close to every criminal, is a sociopath. They're just people. And so if you can keep them talking, eventually they'll tell their story is basically what he's getting at. And she's taking notes on a notepad? The fuck? <laughs> I don't believe, I wrote down, there's no way she'd be making notes on a pad and not also recording everything as well. We find out later that she does start recording, but not this part, so it really doesn't make any sense. There's there's a moment later where she's recording her conversation with Frank for no reason, and I don't understand why. She absolutely would not be allowed to record the interrogation. So, and nobody even comments on that. She's on a laptop, which she wasn't using before. Remember, she was using a pen and paper before. And later she's on a laptop recording through the face cam of her conversation with Frank while there's an interrogation going on and that video is playing in the very same room. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Somewhere in here I wrote, weird pacing, bad acting, bad sound quality, bad lighting. (laughs) Hank is good. I like Hank. I think he did a great job until the script kind of lets him down. I I, I did not enjoy this movie. You said it was made on 15,000? Yeah. Hey, you know. I think it's fantastic for 15,000. Good for you for making a movie. Right. I don't know why you did. (laughs) Good for you that you did something you wanted to do. Anyway, finally, to the interrogation, 
The whole reason she's here is to do a story on this one cop, and the other guy is interested in her, and she knows that. She's not an idiot. And he, the, the other cop, Cardenas, is about to go into the interrogation, and as he's doing so, the guy says to him, I want to hear about your writing process. You want me to talk while the interrogation is going on, the whole reason I'm here. Right. So fucking stupid. Uh-huh. This movie well, is filled with He's stupidity. trying to chat her up. Yeah. It makes no fucking sense. Uh-huh. He's all, He also puts her down, like, all the time, Frank. He puts Regina down, like, so much. Like, she's just a bartender. She's a glorified like, cocktail waitress. Yeah, like, it, and it's Jesus, man. Yeah. So he goes in and does the interrogation, and here's really what the movie is about. When Chris earlier said this could have been a one-act play, they could have taken out everything we just talked about. Literally everything. All of that stuff. Unnecessary for this movie. (laughs) It should have just been the two of them in an interrogation room. That's, That's what this movie is. So, he sits down with this guy, and this guy way overacts. He's got the whole, like, I'm calm, I'm cool, I'm collected, I'm smarter than you, but I'm also not a dick, even though you think I am. I'm not actually, because in fact, I am who I say I am, even though you won't believe that, and the movie will give you no reason to believe me until the end of the film. And there, he, he has this comment about how many languages he knows, and it's like, dead languages and stuff like that, and... He says, quote, I know, I know, it sounds pretentious. How many languages do you speak? I don't remember. You don't remember? Well, some of them are dead languages, like, oh, Aramaic. You speak Aramaic. It's quite seductive, eh? You're a Tower of Babel. I know, I know, it sounds pretentious. You're right, it does. Everything you say does. It's not until later that the other detective, Frank Oslo, is like, what a pretentious fuck. What a pretentious fuck. It's like, yes. And and I think the reporter at one point calls him pretentious, too. And it's like, yes, this is exactly what I'm talking about. He is so incredibly pretentious. And for the longest time, I could not pin down what it was he made me think of that was kind of making me hate him. And then I realized, I said, I know who the dude reminds me of. He's so much like that dipshit Max Landis. And that is not in his favor. Max Landis, if you know, American werewolf in London was directed by John Landis. His son, Max Landis is a pretentious fuck. And he looks and he talks like just like him. Well, it's hilarious that you say that because you want to know one of the problems I had trying to not hate this guy as much as I did. He reminds me a whole hell of a lot of one of my exes. Yes. Looks like him, talks like him, acts like him. And I'm just like, it is not helping you in any way right no. now. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I'm thinking of Max Landis, who's a total douchebag. He's the guy who wrote Bright. You know, the, the Netflix movie that takes place in modern day, but hey, there are orcs and elves. we didn't see that. We cannot judge that until we've seen it. I've seen enough of it. Well, I haven't. I've watched a lot of commentary on it. 
And I, I wrote down, aside from Vincent being pretentious, this is kind of my jam. I wrote this down. That's why I made the comment when we we're talking about Ninth Gate about how it's my jam. It's because I had already written it down for this movie. It feels like Murder Mysteries, which is the I've mentioned it before on the show. It's the Neil Gaiman. It, it's a comic. It's been adapted to a radio play. I would highly recommend you check it out. It's like this, but done better. And again, it's about angels and Lucifer and all of that, but told through the context of humans. So I would highly recommend you you check out Murder Mysteries. It's about the first ever murder that involved angels. And the problem is with that is that now you're comparing this micro-budget indie film with Neil Gaiman. And that's a problem. <laughs> because Tom, Tom Murtaugh, you're not Neil Gaiman. And you're allowed to try to be, absolutely. But the quality of the writing here is not as good as Murder Mysteries, which I will admit has some pretense going on there. But it pulls it off a lot better than this does. The guy will ask him on several occasions if he was at the Roman Antiquities show at the Getty. Were you at the Roman Antiquities show at the Getty? He also discusses what it feels like to be in a swarm of locusts. Oh, he, when he talks about the Roman Antiquities show, he talks about the things that they got wrong as if he was there and he knows. That's what my next note is. He yeah. talks about Caesar as if he was right there when it happened. Cardenas at one point tells him it's impossible the things you're saying. And he says, why? And he says, human biology, you can't have done these things. And he's just like, I'm immune to it because I'm not a human. I'm the fallen angel. And he's like, you mean you're Satan? And he's like, no, I'm Lucifer's little brother. Okay. That's fine. Okay. I don't have any problem with that. You don't get to say I'm the fallen angel when you're not fucking Satan. Right. Yeah. But I mean, Satan, Lucifer is not the only fallen angel. But when you say the fallen angel, that's who you're talking about. Maybe he said I'm a fallen angel. I don't know. I'm not human. Well, if you're not human, then what are you? The fallen angel. Either this is said in the movie or I just wrote it. <laughs> what a pretentious fuck. <laughs> Maybe that was said <laughs> that's, in the film. No, that, that's what Detective Oslo said, yeah. What a pretentious fuck. At one point, Cardenas is talking to the chick, and he doesn't realize he's being filmed, and he says, I'm a techno doofus. Oh, you're a doofus about techno music? Interesting. <laughs> and this is when Hank goes back in there and, he, and they're showing him that, oh, what, you're recording him? And nobody comments about the fact that you're recording you're not allowed to during do an That's interrogation. Illegal. Yeah, like, come on now. At one point, he's like, you said, A, that means you're Canadian. He's like, oh, I'm still doing that? What, were you in Canada before this? Yeah. And then you moved to L.A. when you decided to be an actor, even though that has nothing to do with the history that you're going to tell us you have? The fuck are you well, even talking about? the point is, he's lived all over the what world. What is happening? He's lived all over the world, and he picks up accents, and I think that was their way of trying to combat the fact that who, regardless of who they pick, they're not going to have an angel's accent, so they need to explain an accent. 
That's how they do it. At one point, Cardenas is talking to the girl again, and she's like, he's an actor. He moved here from Canada. He moved to L.A. He likes himself. He's an actor. And Cardenas says, we've got a detective on our hands, which sounds like he's making fun of her, but he's not. He's being serious. Yeah. I don't like this movie. I'm really sorry, Peter. I really fucking don't like this movie. (laughs) I am seeing it for all the potential that it has. I I think that it's trying some really interesting things and what it's doing in the process is, is it's bringing to light all the ways that it's not quite getting there and it's accentuating those points. While there's a lot of potential, it's hard to focus on that potential because now all I'm thinking about is all the ways that they don't pull it off. At one point he comes in and tells him, I figured it out. You're, you're an actor. And he says, yeah, I am. Yeah. Also, I do skateboard tours of murders. Yeah, HollywoodSkateboardTours.com. It's a real website. You can go there. (laughs) And it's made for this, but, like, a lot of the links don't work. There's not a lot of information. If you click on one-man show, you don't get a video of his one-man show. You just get four pictures of it. A little button that says tickets that doesn't actually do anything. Um, A lot of work went went into that. Yeah. Sounds like it. There's a contact page, which who knows what happens when you go there. And then there's a tours page where he just goes over these crimes, uh, which include the Black Dahlia, Natalie Wood, Dorothy Stratton. uh, Then there's the Brown Dahlia. And then there's George Reeves, who was an apparent suicide. But people, a lot of people don't believe that. Uh, And it's just like three sentences on each of these. (laughs) But I mean, it's it's better than a lot of other movies do when they talk about websites and they don't even bother to make one. Welcome to the official homepage of Hollywood Skateboard Tours. As always, I'm your host, Vince Marins. Check out the site for never-before-seen images, footage, and exciting interviews, none of which is actually on the site. But think about this. He's literally Satan's little brother. Which he doesn't explain what that means. There's... Familial relationship by God. Right. Are they all brothers? Anyway, he's literally Satan's little brother, ostensibly, I guess. He created a skateboard tour vi- business. Like, why? You're an angel. You don't need to eat. You live forever. You don't need any resources. Why are you doing this? <laughs> but I guess that tracks your Satan's little brother. <laughs> why does he do any of the shit that he does? So Hank goes and he watches a clip of his one-man show, and it's very one-man showy, and I'm worried, I'm worried that the filmmakers don't realize how obnoxious it is, that they think it's actually really cool and good. Look, if I were to see this one-man show, I'd be like, yeah, it was okay. It was interesting. For a one-man show. Right. It's all (laughs) for a one-man show. But what we're watching is a movie. Not a one-man show. Just like we're not watching a two-man, one-act play. We're watching a film. And so you need to do more. I don't mean I need bombast or anything like that, but things that would fly in a live performance that's 40 minutes long or whatever, 
don't fly in an hour and a half long movie. Yep. In any case, in this one man show, Vince tells a story about what happened with Satan. Lucifer, he gets offended when you call him Satan. Angel's name is Lucifer. And they talk about all the different names he's had. Oh, the morning star and all that. He was a great singer. He was singing and everyone was really excited in heaven. And then from his singing created a creature, like a creature spawned. His singing was so beautiful. The creature loved him. But God, God's the only one who's allowed to create life. And so they get into a fight and Lucifer jumps out of heaven. And No, he's pushed out right. by God. It's Vincent the brother that jumps. follows him, jumps after him, but he slams into the earth, whereas Lucifer goes all the way through and into hell. So now, basically from the beginning of history, Vincent's been stuck on earth, and Lucifer's been saying, okay, do this thing for me, and I'll let you join me in hell. Meanwhile, he's let tons of other fallen angels in, join him in hell, but for whatever reason... Not Vincent. I guess he doesn't trust that he's really actually hell worthy. But he gives him tests. Basically, every couple centuries, he gives him a test. And Vincent fails at this test every single time. It usually involves killing somebody. And so he just hangs around for another couple centuries until he gets another test. And what he was saying is this woman, he knows her address. He knows where she lived, but he wasn't actually there. She was his test this time, but he didn't make it, and she still wound up dead. I wrote down here, of course, he has a one-man show. (laughs) We also find out when they take a break, Hank and the reporter, we find out how Hank used to sing and he used to play electric guitar, and I'm like, oh, I saw that coming. So you kind of see this unfolding as it's happening, and you're very much aware of what's going on here. Ultimately, he agrees to do some improv with... Vincent, because that's the only way he can get Vincent to talk is Vincent demands they do improv. And you know what everyone really loves is pretentious comedian and actor improv. Everyone loves improv. (laughs) But this is what the movie is going to spend a large chunk of its time dealing with. Immediately, as soon as Hank, as soon as Hank agrees to do the improv, he is completely 100% wrapped up in it. And he starts crying and stuff. The improv is that they're on an elevator. That room is an elevator and it's descending into hell. And he starts panicking and freaking out when he can feel the room shaking. Isn't that enough? 23, relax. Henry, the cable has us. Okay, okay, enough. One mile. Stop. Easy, buddy. Okay, okay, that's it. Two miles. I... Really, stop. Three. I can't. Stop. Stop. And then there's this convoluted thing where Vince can't get out of the room because it's locked and Hank's trying to tell him to stop trying to. But then they can't go back up because the elevator weighs too much. They need to lighten the load. I wrote, I don't believe Henry would get wrapped up in the elevator improv. At all. He just immediately starts panicking. And I don't think they do enough to tell us that anything is really happening. So we need to assume that it's not actually happening, that it's part of the improv. It's funny that you say that. 
this was like the first time that I was like, huh, they're making me wonder if this is real or not. That's interesting. And then I was actually legitimately confused. I was like, did they really go to hell or did they not? I can't tell. Well, they did. No, I don't think it matters. <sighs> it's just the, the point is that Hank needs to think that they did. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm going to get the order of events wrong here. But Vince says, did you listen to the 911 call? And Hank's like, yeah, I listened to the 911 call. And he's like, which 911 call? And we find out that there's a second 911 call that's about a woman who's going into labor. And she's all alone. Basically what happened is as Vince was headed to the victim's house, he heard the woman screaming and he stopped and he came across this woman giving labor and he stuck around there until the ambulances showed up to help this woman give birth. And he never made it to the house of the victim. And so all the blood that his shirt was covered in was placental blood, which is what Hank's ex-wife who is a crime scene investigator, apparently, reveals to him, calls him on his flip phone, <laughs> which is weird, <laughs> and tells him that it's placental blood. This happens twice. This is part of the reason why you know they didn't actually go to hell and none of this actually happened, is he gets a call about the placental blood. She tells him it's placental blood. Loretta. Enrique, I got some weird news. What's that? The blood on his clothes. It's not from your victim. Not even close. What? The blood on the shirt you gave me is placental blood. It's from a human birth. Placental. And then when all this is wrapped up again, he gets a call again from her. And then he says, I know it was placental blood. And she's like, how did you know that? Yeah, Loretta. Henry, I have some news about the blood. Yeah, it's placental. Yeah. How did you... I'll call you back, Lorena. So we know that everything that happened prior to that didn't actually happen. But anyway, the tables have turned. This dude is fine. He still claims he's Satan's little brother and that he was totally on his way to murder this lady, but he didn't. And now Hank's, like, breaking down. And now, they, since they stood up at one point when they sit back in, down, they're in opposite positions. Now Hank's in the seat of the person being interrogated, and Vince is in the seat of the person interrogating. And they don't say it out loud, but it still feels a little bit obvious. This is where I wrote down, I feel like this is something I would have written in college. And I think that's one of the problems. It all feels like a writer showing off pretending to be deep instead of actually just revealing the depths of the story through the story itself. This guy has been working in some capacity since the 90s, according to his website. So he can't be that young, and I don't think he is. We saw a picture of him from his Indiegogo pitch. <laughs> but this is his first feature-length project. I feel like he kind of shot the moon on it, thinking it was going to be cool. Yes. And not worried enough about whether it was going to be good. Mm-hmm. And that sounds exactly like me in college. I posted on Twitter my thing about how, yes, I know exactly what college creative writing sounds like because I did very well in college creative writing. That is not me bragging. 
I don't think I was that great a writer, but I was exactly the type of writer that got A pluses in college creative writing courses. <laughs> Ultimately, what happens is Hank, he gets asked by Vince, oh, is she buried under the tree? That's the rumor. Is it actually true? What ends up happening is that Hank bears his soul to Vince and explains how and why he killed the Brown Dahlia. When he said earlier that he sang and he played electric guitar, he met the woman who would become the Brown Dahlia and he was in love with her, even though he was a just like a 15 year old kid or something like that. And she ended up using him for his writing, took one of his songs that he wrote and he got really upset. She didn't. She Give wasn't contrite at all, and he ended up killing her on that trail out there. And he thought he made a deal with God that if he spent the rest of his life putting murderers behind bars, he would be atoned. And the devil's little brother told him the same thing. Yeah, if you just confess, and this is what the ascent is about, right? It's them coming, it's the elevator coming back up from heaven, and it's him, Hank, getting redeemed ostensibly so the interview's over the guy didn't do it hank leaves and he kind of feels that this is all just like like it didn't actually happen the reporter is like hey what's going on and he's like well he didn't do it i gotta go she's like well i need to ride home and so he takes her to her car and then he goes home he gets a message or something and he sees that the reporter posted a video online saying, oh, my God, police officer Henry Cardenas admitted to killing the Brown Dahlia. She has it all on tape and she shows it. I've been following the Brown Dahlia case for three years. And tonight, your intrepid reporter, Regina Parker, has a huge breakthrough. LAPD detective Henry Cardenas confessed to the murder of Laura Maldonado, a.k.a. the Brown Dahlia. I, I put Laura in, in a few uh, black plastic bags. Then I took her and buried her. Because when he brought her laptop into the interrogation room to show the website and the one-man show stuff, she was still recording. Because remember, he's a techno-doofus. Yes. <sighs> He gets a call from his partner asking what the fuck what the fuck's going on is this real and he ends up hanging up on him he's having heart palpitations of some sort he's getting really sweaty he's breathing heavy he gets in his car and he goes to the place where he normally takes his hikes and we it, it's revealed that he goes there because that's where he buried her is on this trail and then we see 15-year-old him talking to her. She's not that great. She yells at him. You know, as much as she deserves to. She didn't deserve to die. But, like, I don't... I, I feel sorry for her as a person. But I don't sympathize with her as, like, a character. You yeah, know exactly. I mean? Like, she's she was an awful she was a person. Piece of shit. Yeah. That doesn't mean that she deserved to die. Exactly. She was an awful human being. Yeah. So it's like... It's kind of a wash. It's just right. kind of like, I don't give a fuck. <laughs> and I know ultimately it's not. That's no excuse to kill somebody. But it you made it, you actively made it harder for me to care that she was dead. And so that's Well, because that's, it's deep, man. It makes you wonder, is he truly a bad guy? How far do we have to go before we're a bad guy? Oh, we totally forgot. 
What Vince actually told him is that if he solves the murder of the woman that Vince was being accused of killing, then he can get redeemed. Oh, that's what the deal was. Yeah, and he can go, He so he goes back to that location, and there he sees a girl that he talked to earlier that day when they went to the crime scene. Turns out it's actually Satan in a little girl's body, which has never been done before. <laughs> and she sings a song to prove that... Satan's a good singer, but she's not. For you will bend and tell me that you love me. And I will sleep in peace until you come to me. That really bothered Chris at the time. (laughs) I remember. And Satan also reveals that, and, and Hank kind of figures it out, that she committed suicide. Because she was possessed by Satan, Satan did it. Because why, Kelsey? Because Satan doesn't actually want his little brother to come down to hell. Not because he's an asshole, (laughs) but because he actually doesn't think it's a good place for his brother to be. I just can't do it to him. I can't take him down here. Yeah. Which tells us. We're still in hell. Cardenas is in hell. And he's like, hey, what the fuck? I thought if I solved this, I wouldn't have to go. And Devil's just like, no. Yeah. (laughs) What the fuck made you think that was true? (laughs) You made a deal with the Devil's brother. Good for you. (laughs) So that also makes Vince out to be a total dick and screws this guy over. Uh, But he is a murderer, of course. But meanwhile, back at the actual tree where he buried the brown dahlia... He ends up dying from a heart attack, and this girl, like, looks at him. That's kind of the end of the movie. Yep. I wrote before the reveal of the reporter that she'd been recording the whole time. The reporter should be more important to the story if they're going to use her so much. But then they just drop her, which is what it seemed like when he dropped her off at the car. So that was sort of a subversion that it successfully pulled off in a way. I said, oh, there it is. But really, was that necessary? Did we need it spelled out for us? Did it have to be made public for it to have an impact on us? Sounds like Chris wouldn't have been happy either way. What do you mean? Well, you were annoyed that she was pointless and then you didn't like that they did it. (laughs) No, I mean, we already knew he did it by this point. So it isn't a reveal to the audience. If he is really to be redeemed in any way then he shouldn't be pushed by public perception to reveal the fact that he actually did it, right? It should either be a private revelation or he should give himself up because the whole point is that he's good at eliciting confessions to get the guilt off of people's minds for them to express remorse. And he himself is never given that opportunity despite the fact that, and I wrote this down, He broke the confession record with his own confession. But I think you're missing the point in that he never... Confessed? He he never feels remorse for what he did. That's kind of my big issue here is that he's like, oh, you'll always get remorse out of them. But him, specifically, you don't get remorse out of him because in his eyes, he's made up for it. Yeah, well, see, this is my point, though, right? Like, the filmmakers were, were so concerned about making something cool 
that they didn't bother to wonder, were they actually making it good? Yep. Somebody saw Frailty and thought, I can do it better. And yeah, they well, we'll watch were Frailty. Wrong. We'll watch Frailty on Father's Day next year. I'm surprised that they showed restraint enough and didn't make the last line of the film or something about how he broke the confession record with his own confession. <laughs> In the beginning, they constantly go back to the fact that he tied the record and he just needs one more. In the end, it it only acted as encouragement for him to take this case. But that didn't make too much sense because our guy, Hank, didn't seem that interested in the record in the first place. And so all of it feels like, okay, if you were going to include it, why didn't you execute on it? And it, and even still, the fact that you included it and didn't execute on it, it makes it worse the fact that it doesn't make sense to the character and their motivation. So you might as well have just taken it all out. And it's the same thing with the reporter. And that's why I'm telling you, just pair all this shit down and go to a two-man, one-act play. That's what this should have been. Oh, and we get a late title card. <laughs> At the very end. Because that's not pretentious as fuck. Nope. There's a couple of songs they sing by the waters of Babylon. They sing in the elevator to get it to go back up again. I'm like, wait a minute, I thought the elevator was too heavy. <laughs> but anyway... It almost feels like all the interrogation stuff and the elevator stuff should have been slowed down because, like I said, it was just like immediately he's wrapped up in the improv and they're going down in an elevator and he's panicking. And it's just like they just make a turn. And it's like, well, I don't believe that Hank would would act this way at all. It feels unbelievable. And that's not good when Hank is your best character. But then it would be boring and too long. As it is, I know where they're going and I just... I, I can't wait for them to just fucking get there. And that's why I ultimately decided this really should have been a play. In words, just these two people and they have a whole stage to work with and that's it. Do you have anything else you want to say about this, Kelsey? Not really. <laughs> so. Rotten Tomatoes. There's fucking nothing. Word to the wise, don't name your movie The Ascent. <laughs> That's what I have written down here. So much shit that has a scent in it. And if you're going to use a generic name like that, think of search engine optimization people. Metacritic. Nope, nothing there either. And you know what? Again, I could be wrong because it's like impossible to find this movie anywhere. Cinema score. It was an act of the purest optimism to have even checked in the first place. There is, however, an IMDb score where they give it out of 10 stars, and there's a single decimal point. So we'll convert that to a two-digit number. What do you think its IMDb score is? 4.8. 5.7. Do you think that's overrated or underrated? I think 57 is overrated. What would you give it? I'm going to give it a 25. Mm. I'm giving it a 25 because... I like when people set out to do something they clearly care a lot about. Yeah. I like that they did it all for a mere 15 grand. I think there was a lot of heart put into this. Yeah. Unfortunately, that didn't pay off to any extent, but... I think that's worth more than you do, though. They put a lot in. They cared a lot about this yeah. project. And it's this is what I'm saying. It's his first feature film... I feel like if he had the budget, if he had the support, and he wasn't 
Okay, if you're an independent filmmaker, it's really easy to want to direct your own script. Do one or the other. Do not do both. Because if you're directing your own script, you're your own yes man. And even though you may hate the stuff that you write yourself, that's fine, but you're still making it, aren't you? Like, either write a script and have somebody else direct it, acting as a filter between you and the audience, or direct somebody else's script. If you're a first-time indie filmmaker. And I know that sounds weird because who's going to give you a script to direct or who's going to direct your script? And that makes it really, really tough. But when you've never done it before and you try to do both, you're going to end up making pretentious shit. Most of the time. So don't do that. (laughs) I was going to give it a 40 for the same reasons you cite. The exact same ones. I give it a little bit more credit. I feel like bring in somebody else's script or bring in a different director, give them a bigger budget, pick different actors, and this could have been something like really good. Watch Frailty. It's better. (laughs) People are going to be so confused. I was so confused the first time you said that. I'm like, what are you talking about? And then you explain, okay, the framing device of Frailty is very similar to this. Look. The parts that stuck out to me that I actually somewhat enjoyed. I actually kind of enjoyed the one-man show. And I was like, I would much rather have watched that than this. Yeah, not for an hour and a half, but... No. But But, yeah. It was basically a monologue that he might do for an acting class. Exactly. Yeah. And I think coming from an acting, from a drama teacher... Like, I would have loved it if, like, one of my kids had written that and did it in class. Right. I teach middle school. <laughs> but, but again, this is – okay, that would have been really impressive for middle school. Is what but, I'm maybe, but maybe high school, maybe college. This is what I'm talking about. Not at a professional standard, though. That's my point. Mm-hmm. It's good for if one of an my kids, amateur. If one of my kids did this, I would be like, holy shit, keep going. Well, yeah, I think this guy should keep going. It's just unfortunate that he's like 40-something. <laughs> Don't let your age ever stand in your way. If if he can continue on, if he can parlay this into something else, it's good that he got this low-budget movie that nobody ever really saw like out of his system. So maybe he can take what ob- – there's, there's some skill here and like – Foster that and develop that. And I I think there's a lot of potential there. And I know we've said this about movies in the past too, especially when it comes to indie movies, is there's a lot of potential there. Unfortunately, this was just too up its own ass. And I also liked the scene where it was confusing as to whether or not they were in hell. Yeah. That was the one time that I thought the the skateboarder. Vince. I love that he skateboards. <laughs> that was the one time that I saw some actually decent acting out of him when he desperately wanted to get through the door. Yeah, I mean, he's given lines that are always like like perfectly crafted and so like, ooh, he's mysterious and oh, he's so smart and oh, it's like that's obviously supposed to communicate that, but As a result, you just made him completely unbelievable. And I can't believe his acting. So there's this moment when he's trying to get out. And he seems actually genuinely sad. A little scared. And angry at the same time. You tricked me. 
you've always been just tricking me. Your rendezvous? Every fucking couple of centuries. <laughs> I jumped after you. <laughs> I love you so much. <laughs> It was the one time that I thought the actor was actually showing emotions that, like, I could believe on his face. Like, yeah. he looked genuinely upset that he couldn't get through the door. And when he screams out something about, I love you, that's all I've ever done is love you, it felt real. Yeah. He's and so I know. By the script, I think. I know it bothered you that the other guy seemed so, so upset by going down. I kind of liked that because, like I said, it made me wonder, did they really go down? I couldn't figure it out. It just felt a little ridiculous to me because it was like turning on a dime. I and felt that's like, why it felt real. No, no, no. Because it happened out of nowhere. Right. But he's reacting like he's being hypnotized. You know how people, when they're hypnotized and then they're re-experiencing a trauma and then they're like panicking, but they're just sitting in a chair you know, they're like, oh, my God, no, what's Chris, happening? Chris doesn't believe in hypnotism. That's a complicated question. Um, <laughs> but that's what that's what I'm talking about is what it seemed like. He wasn't like, oh, holy shit, this room is actually moving. What the fuck? Like, it's shaking right now. And I'm going to hide in this corner. He was just in a chair like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. And I'm like, okay, you're acting like you're doing improv. And it just seems like you bought into the improv a little bit too much, not like the elevator's actually moving. And that was my problem. It was a really quick buying in of improv, not, oh, shit, is this really happening? I, I couldn't buy that. At no point did I think they were actually physically moving anywhere. I thought, like I said, this was the one scene where I was I was actually into right. the brothers acting. So he... Sure. Yeah. He made me buy into it. Uh-huh. And then, as soon as they get back up, and the guy's like, I gotta solve this other murder. <laughs> we never see Vince again. <laughs> which is unfortunate. Seems like this... Like he deserved more than just being dropped completely. Anyway. So that's The Ascent. Yeah. Peter? Thank you very much for recommending this. Thank you for the recommendation, Peter. And thank you for all of your support. And thank you for the lovely emails that you have sent us. That concludes our satanic thriller week here on Pod Cemetery. Kelsey, what are we watching next week? Next week, we continue on our foray into sequels. It's sequel week. We will be watching House 2. The second story. And The Conjuring 2. Yeah. Which, if you don't remember, we watched that in our, what, second week? It was a very long time ago. Our third week. Uh-huh. So we're finally watching the sequel. We still haven't watched any of the Insidious movies on this I know. show. And we like the first two Insidious movies. We love movies the first two movies. Quite so a bit. You just haven't had a chance to. No, no. Uh, so, yeah, we're going to be watching both of those, and they're both kind of like haunted house sequels. 
Yes. So that's where those come from. And then after that, it's Halloween week, right? Yes. Really exciting. We're going to be watching Halloween 3. <laughs> Why are you so excited for Two this? more weeks till Halloween. God. Halloween. Halloween. Yes, there are parts of it that are fun. <laughs> that does not make it a good movie. Tom Atkins. Yeah. <laughs> not his best role. Okay. Well, until then, guys, you can always reach us at our website, podcemetery.com. Or on Twitter, at Pod Cemetery, where we post a lot of extra crap, so please follow us there. <laughs> <laughs> you can also email us, like Peter has done, at podcemetery at gmail.com. And don't forget to follow us in your podcatcher of choice. Subscribe to the show there. And rate and review. Five-star written reviews are the biggest help you can do with your reviews. Don't forget to share us with your friends, because that's even better. And even better than that. Guys, thank you so much for listening in the heckin' first place. We love each and every one of you. Until next time, I've been Chris. I've been Kelsey. And this has been Pod Cemetery. But before we go, Kelsey, any last words? Listen to me very carefully. I think you may already have some idea of the lengths to which I'm prepared to go when I want something. Unless you recover my property in double-quick time, you'll discover just how far that can be. To the sacred place To see a dream I can't escape Smolders and fangs that are picking up bones Spirits moaning among the tombstones He's about to get on a plane to Spain Where I assume it's raining Anyway, uh, I'll cut that out <laughs> What's funny is that the guy's name is Bernie and every time I heard him, him them say Bernie, I was like, Bernie liked to chew gum. No, not chew. Pop. Why does that sound so familiar? What is that? Chicago. Oh, okay. Because, you know, she kills her husband. So, like, when yeah, he's dead, uh-huh. it's like, Bernie liked to chew gum. No, not chew. Pop. Mm-hmm. And I told him. You pop that gun one more time. And he did. So I fired two warning shots into his head. <laughs> I love you. What was that? Arnold Schwarzenegger one? Yeah. That's exactly what I was trying to think of. <laughs> the six. Six day? No, that's not it. That is an Arnold Schwarzenegger <laughs> movie, but that's not the one. <laughs> It's a Darude sandstorm. Yes. I can hear Lavinia snoring from here. (laughs) She's in the fucking guest room. Before we move on to our next film, Kelsey, Trivial Pursuit. No, horror trivia. Shit. That's what it's about. Matthew McConaughey talking to a police officer. Don't ruin it. It's the framing device. Don't ruin it. You're the one ruining it. (laughs) 
No, I'm just saying watch it. I'm not saying why. Well, otherwise people are going to be so fucking confused. <laughs> it's so obvious. Well, frailty is about a dad and his kids, and he thinks he's doing what God wants him to do, but he's actually doing what the devil wants him to do. And that's not what's going on here at all. If you ask somebody what frailty is about, that's what they're going to say. They're not going to think about the framing device, which is really what you're talking about. Anyway. Did your eyes pop open because you realized you didn't have any last words? 